welcome back to the Deep Fade. My name is Zach Elliott, joined as always by producer extraordinaire Raven Gassa. How you doing? I'm doing good. Had a Red Bull. What flavor? Oh, I always go with the. Uh, what is it? I believe it's tropical. Yeah, tropical. Is that a flavor? Yeah, I used to always go with the tangerine, but they don't. I appreciate sell those the music anymore. playing during the Red Bull conversation. Yeah, of course. Um, not a sponsored, sadly. No free ads. No free ads. First, we're going to run through a couple things. Uh, the NFL coaching carousel has stopped spinning, and we finally have a spot for each of the new head coaches in the NFL. Then we're going to move on to a little game of matchmaker. The NBA trade deadline is in two days. So by the time we come back, everything that's going to happen will have happened. So run through... Our last second um, ideal matches for some of the big names, some people that we want to see somewhere else, and just general musings on what the escape of the league is going to look like by this time next week. And then uh, run down a little bit about All-Star Reserves. I don't really think there's that much to talk about. And then I wanted to ask Raven a little bit about F1, because apparently there's some stuff that I should know. But without further ado, Mike McDonald... Sorry, Brendan, uh, has been hired as the head coach of the Seattle Seahawks. So one point I wanted to make about both of these guys, and this is something that we'll jump back to here in a minute. They're both defensively minded coaches. No shit. They're defensive coordinators. But it's a point that I want to explore through this coaching cycle and past. For McDonald specifically, he sees himself as a steward of John Harbaugh's defense going by a piece from Jeff, pardon me if I mispronounce this name, Jeff Zerbiak in The Athletic, written about a week prior to this hiring. Seems like, by everything in his story, team first guy, he's very young, kind of with the McVay type of ascension, going from like high school level to collegiate NFL, jumping back to Michigan with Jim Harbaugh, and then jumping back to the Ravens over the last few years, and now after putting together a defense that was the first in NFL history to lead the league in points allowed, sacks, and turnovers, McDonald is hired as the head coach of the Seahawks. In McDonald's one season at Michigan, they had a top-10 defense and made the college football playoffs under the other Harbaugh, and he takes over a Seattle defense that will ideally bring back free agent Leonard Williams, and then a combination of young players and some useful vets still Tariq Woolen, Boye Mafe, Devon Witherspoon had a great rookie year. Julian Love has been in the league for a few years, but isn't bad. You have some vets who, when healthy, or even just in this last season, were quite productive with Jamal Adams and Shannon Nwosu. If you are the Ravens, you have to hope to maintain some level of similarity with whatever your defense is going to look like next year. But there's no way to reach those same highs. Realistically, because, I mean, injuries year over year change everything. The Ravens had to deal with that as much as anyone, as they always do. But they put together one of the best defenses we've seen this century. And to lose the, the architect of that and to expect something to be similar is unrealistic. However, they have all the same talent. They need to bring back Matabuke, give him a blank check. He deserves it and keep the infrastructure of that defense together to hope to replicate it. But if you're them, this comes back to what we were talking about last week where these coordinators are important. And 
Ben Johnson not going to the Commanders matters, and it drastically affects how we feel about the Lions' offense next year, and it removes questions of whether or not we think whatever new guy is going to be able to work with Goff. It's the same thing here. It's not like I think Roquan Smith or Marlon Humphrey are certainly going to get worse, but without McDonald, you have to worry. The Seahawks, great hire. McDonald is 36, but was widely viewed to be a top candidate by a lot of teams, including Washington. And to land him this late in the coaching cycle to show that your patience has paid off had clearly benefited them. The Seahawks need to bolster both lines and answer the lingering Geno question, but it's a good job, and with John Schneider behind you, who is a proven decent to good drafter, and then the infrastructure of a quality organization, the Seahawks, is good. So first-time head coach landing with a good organization is as good as you can hope for for McDonald himself. And then for the Seahawks, I I like them going into next year to sneak up on one of those teams within the division because I, I don't think that I'm speaking out of turn to say that the Rams are going to be favored over them and the 49ers obviously are. If McDonald can replicate some of the results that he had last year, albeit with lesser talent, then what was already an average offense could be really bolstered by what becomes a top 10 defense. On the other side of the country, Dan Quinn, also defensively minded, Hadoy, hired by the Washington Commanders. I think this is a better job than a lot of people have given it credit to, even me, because if you think about it from, let's start with the offensive side of the ball. Drake May or Jane Daniels is going to come in year one. No doubt they're going to start. I would be shocked and appalled if they start Brissett or Howell over them to start the year, unless there's an injury that they end up dealing with. Terry McLaurin, Jahan Dotson, Curtis Samuel, solid base as a receiver core, for sure. McLaurin's awesome, and Dotson fell off the face of the earth for most of last year, but I don't think he got fundamentally worse. And then Brian Robinson, Antonio Gibson, they still have good defensive tackles. Allen and Jerron Payne are there. Everything else is decrepit. Sorry, Emmanuel Forbes, who I think still weighs less than me. But this is why you hire Dan Quinn. Cowboys defense, when he joined there, was bottom five in points allowed and yards allowed. By the end of his time there this past season, they were top 10 or top five in both. He's always going to have the 28-3 stink lingering on him, but I think this is a stable reset after Ron Rivera and has a generally respective offensive nine next to him in Eric Bieniemy, who, if they don't keep, I think there's still a lot of talent out there worth considering. I would have suggested Cliff Kingsbury before he got hired by the Raiders. There's still time to find someone. And clearly, like as far as the decision-making goes for who Dan Quinn, at least, is willing to put, um, willing to put his, his faith in I, I would like to believe that if you go from Kyle Shanahan to, uh, to I don't know. I mean, even if they keep the enemy, I, I generally trust him, even if it's someone like Chip Kelly, who I saw being rumored. I don't know how to feel about that, but I think the guy that they hired GM prior to, uh, to Quinn, Adam Peters, has been lauded just for people on around the league view him he's coming over from the 49ers so it's someone that Shanahan someone that Quinn knows advocates for 
all told, I think that he's landing in a spot with support and then the the well wishes of I don't know if that's the right word, but the uh, the considerations of people around the league, including in his own front office, that want him to succeed. He is not being put in there just as someone to fill the spot until a better coach comes along. Dan Quinn's not going to be a one-and-done unless next year is a complete disaster. I generally approve, but credit to my father, actually. I think that he also might be cutting bait from McCarthy's staff because he doesn't want to be his co-pilot when McCarthy is in the unemployment line. Because I think barring a, a feisty NFC Championship game appearance or the Super Bowl, I think, Raven, you'll be able to understand this analogy. I think he's in a lot of the same spot as Budenholzer the year they won the title, where unless McCarthy literally wins the Super Bowl, they're going to can him. And I think they would. I think if Bud had lost in the finals, they would have fired him too. So credit to Quinn for getting off a sinking ship and credit to Washington for bringing in someone that I think at least people around the league and in the organization will trust to lead them going forward. Almost more importantly... After these two hires, Bill Belichick, Pete Carroll, and Mike Frabel are going to be without jobs this coming season. In all likelihood. Could, could Bill Belichick be a defensive coordinator? Sure. I just, I just don't see that happening. I think it's a lot more likely that we see them in like the Sean Payton kind of role where Belichick for sure, I think, would be amicable to joining like the Fox staff or the CBS staff. I only say Fox because I think Brady and Gronk both work for them, which would be... And Edelman, which I think a four-man panel, if they did that once a week, I think people would watch it. Just not to give free ideas, but, you know. Pete Carroll, I honestly think, would be really good on TV. Just with his uh, his vim and vigor for a 70-plus-year-old man, I would enjoy seeing on television. But I think he still wants to be in the game. And I think there's every chance that he actually just accepts his role within the Seahawks organization because he wants to be around it. I'm not sure, though. Vrabel's the one that interests me because I have a hard time just seeing him switching to TV and then going back to coaching. I'm curious to know why he didn't take a job. Because no offense to Dave Canales or even Mike McDonald or, or Dan Quinn, I think that if Mike Vrabel wanted one of those jobs, he'd have it. So I'd offer the idea that all of them, including Belichick and Carroll, might have wanted more control than these teams were willing to give. Maybe they just wanted someone younger for the former two. Ultimately, I just don't think that Vrabel wanted to coach any of these teams' openings. Like, maybe you could have argued the Falcons, but it's just, I don't even think it's a guarantee that Belichick wanted that job, especially after the disagreements between Arthur Blank and the rest of his ownership, trying to debate whether or not they actually wanted to hire him. You're going into a situation that doesn't have a quarterback in Carolina. I don't think that most of us know if the quarterback is even good. Like, what's the best job after that? The Chargers? Even then, like, Harbaugh is taking on a challenge to rebuild what is an anemic defense and revitalize a culture that is supported by fans who do not exist. So I wanted to take a look at the potential openings next year because that I think that informs us to why these guys don't have jobs more than no one wanted them. I know like Marlon Humphrey said, it's like, oh, Belichick didn't get a job this year. We can sell a debate about him being the best coach ever. Sure. And if I called up 
I don't know. If I re resurrected Buddy Ryan, I don't think that anyone would hire him either. Sometimes guys are just old and it doesn't fit, or they have demands that don't fit the job description. Whatever. I ranked the potential openings next year in a few different categories, the first one being a decent to large chance of being open, low to decent, and then long shot, holy moly options that would shock us, but is not out of the realm of possibility. For decent to large, I said the Cowboys. We already talked about McCarthy. The Bills, there was talk of them after this additional loss on McDermott's resume about retiring him from the organization too. I think it's very possible that if they lose again in the playoffs, and a lot of the same way McCarthy, it's do or die time. I think McDermott makes the Super Bowl. I don't think that he'll get fired because that is the barrier he needs to get through, but I think it's a firm barrier. The Jets, because did you read the piece coming out about how much of a complete mess the organization was? Shocker that Aaron Rodgers isn't the leader that we thought he was. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <clears throat> the Jets situation is weird because you're quarterback that you signed did get injured four plays into the season now as a head coach your job is to now scavenge scra scavenge the rest of the season together to make something malleable but i think oh man i don't know how the jets head coach should really feel with how he was really wanting to get Zach Wilson on the field and be their quarterback. Yeah, I think when everyone else on that team is like, no, I don't want this. I think it was a balance of both because there was a combination of, of it. Salah supporting Wilson and then withdrawing his support and then trying to get him to start again. When he reportedly told Zach Wilson he was going to get benched and traded. And then Wilson didn't want to start. And so he sent Aaron Rodgers to talk to him reportedly. And then that obviously didn't go well. Plus, I feel like it's obvious from the outside, but it also being reported from the inside it makes sense that the defensive players kind of got sick of there being a communal blame on the team when it is not the defense's fault for how bad they were. I, I do not think Robert Sala lasts through the end of next year unless they win a playoff game, and I would just be surprised if that happened. Jags, because they regressed this year, and if they stagnate again, I think Peterson is going to be out. Low to decent, I put the Bears. Same deal as, um, I guess, the the Jags more so. Look, they didn't stagnate. They got several wins better last year, but I think that if they, especially if they keep fields, but also if they draft Williams and don't improve even more, then I... I don't think that Eberflus is going to survive another 8-9 and nine or 7-10 and 10 season just with how many people wanted his head this offseason. The Saints, there was talk of Dennis Allen. It was very light of uh, Dennis Allen being considered to be removed, but I think it would require at least another bad year and honestly even worse than this one. The Eagles, Sirianni loses both of his coordinators, falls apart. I, I thought that it was always a little bit far-fetched that they were going to fire him this offseason when there wasn't some major scandal other than the team fell off dramatically. Look, they're bringing on a new staff, and maybe that revitalizes this whole team, but ultimately that doesn't make any of the old players younger. So we may be just looking at a situation where 
the bad problems get worse, even if I think marginally the offense might get better. And then if that happens, then they lose again in the first round. Philadelphia is going to want Sirianna to be on. And if Mike Vrabel is waiting in the wings, I think they'd be even more open to it. I put down the Vikings. I think O'Connell and Brian Flores did a lot with the team that they had this year and deserve credit. I think that if they bring back Cousins or bring in an equal or better quarterback and are able to improve on last year and sneak into a wild card, I think we'll get one more year. I get the impression that people aren't dying to get rid of them, and I've, I've never been necessarily opposed to how he runs that team, but it is in the low to decent chance for a reason. And then the two long shots, and I think this is absolutely at the front of Belichick or Vrabel's mind, Carroll too. I said the Steelers and the Ravens, only because, think back to the end of your press conference for Mike Tomlin, him walking out in the middle of it when asked about his contract. It's clearly on someone's mind. Well, I will counter that with the next time he spoke to the media, he came up and was like, I'm in a little bit of a better mood. Anyone want any contract information? Like, okay, he was joking about it, but I do, I, I understand the point you're making where believe someone the first time when yeah. they tell you how they're feeling or who they are. But also for that, I mean, they had just lost a tough game. It's not what you want to hear right after you lose. Mike Tomlin's been a head coach for over a decade. It's not the first time he's been asked questions like that. True. What I'm saying is that I think that it is more of a consideration than it might have been in years prior. So I don't think Tomlin would ever get fired. It would be a mutual resignation, but they don't have a quarterback right now. And unless they trade for one, they're going into next year with Mason Rudolph and Kenny Pickett. Things aren't going to get better. Defensive players are getting older. TJ Watt has regularly gotten hurt at some point each year. It might be a the first six-win season of his tenure, and they might say, hey, do you want to sit through this rebuild? And in the same way as Vrabel, he does not. And then they move on. And then that job's open. It gets filled. It's possible. The Ravens. I only say this because I am fearful for them without McDonald, and I am fearful for what this kind of loss can do to a franchise. Especially if Lamar has health issues again next year, and they drop to like 9-8 and eight or 8-9. Eight and nine. I think it's very possible that people start looking at Harbaugh as the guy who has been here for over a decade, say, what have you done for me recently since the 2012 Super Bowl? And that, again, I don't think that the Ravens, barring some public disaster, would ever oust John Harbaugh. It's just possible. My point is, Vrabel and these guys aren't going to be less viable next year, and they might have been looking to these jobs anyway. One last point before we move on to some trade deadline talk. This cycle, quote-unquote defensive-minded hires Jim Harbaugh, Mike McDonald, Dan Quinn, Raheem Morris, Antonio Pierce, Gerard Mayo. Offensive-minded, quote-unquote. Dave Canales coming from Tampa Bay, and then Brian Callahan coming from the Bengals. I just wanted to keep an eye on this because I feel like, in many ways, this is a direct overcorrection to the offensive-minded McVay-type replicas that people are trying to find as head coaches. Or even if it's a, again, quote-unquote, defensive-minded guy, 
they want to go with someone more established or someone they view as more steady. I think it's an overcorrection from like Frank Reich and Arthur Smith. These guys are supposed to be quarterback whispers or bring innovative new offenses to their teams and they end up either prioritizing using John F. Smith or they get hot fired after 11 games. So I'm just curious to see how this flows because I think we talk a lot about how much guys like Shanahan and McVeigh are at the cutting edge of scheme offensively and how we want to prioritize offensive development and innovation over defensive. But turns out the defensive guys are the ones getting hired more. We'll be right back talking a little bit NBA trade deadline and more. And we're back. So we wanted to go through and as the trade deadline approaches, match up players to teams, uh, just try to find the right pairing, uh, marry them off to their respective suitors as the trade deadline approaches. It's become more of an event every year where I think even in, I mean, it's certainly a thing in hockey too, but also even in the NFL a little bit, we had a couple of years ago where there were, there were bigger players getting traded. Why do you think that we have such an interest in the trade deadline and the annual swap meet that it is? I feel like for me, I've always understood it as this is your last chance to become the team that you're trying to become this year. Um, you're trying to move some players that maybe aren't working for you, trying to get a new guy that can maybe fill in the roster and some of the weaknesses you have. But I feel like a lot of the bigger guys aren't moving just because a lot of them have already got their place at the moment where maybe say in another five years, we'll have another big time where a lot of superstars are moving around this time. But right now, I think this year, next year, it's just going to be kind of like bench players, maybe like a sixth man you're trying to get. But I, Yeah, I generally agree with that. I think the biggest, frankly, I think the biggest stars that we're going to, that we're going to see moved are guys on the caliber of, of, Levine or DeJounte Murray, DeMar DeRozan, um, hell, I mean, not to the same quality of player, but Andrew Wiggins. It's it's different than in years past because I did I didn't want to run through like what we went through last year where Kevin Durant got traded to the Suns and what what were the other ones? Uh even like this is not the same impact on a title race, but like even James Wiseman, a former number two overall pick, getting traded. Uh, D'Angelo Russell and Russell Westbrook trade. The, I mean, outside of that, it's going to look a lot of like the same this year, where it's going to be the Eric Gordons or um, Grant Hill. Will Grant Hill get Grant, traded at the deadline again? Grant Hill retired many years ago, but sure. Yeah, but he's going to get traded at the deadline. Fair. Uh, the Josh Richardson for Devontae Graham blockbuster last year. That type of deal is something that we're going to see more and more over the next two years, to your point. But like we know, once a year, there's always going to be an unhappy superstar. We don't have one right now. It just might be a sneaky one, which we can get to later. But first things first, Steven Adams traded for Victor Oladipo in three seconds. 
Um, for two players who will definitely not play for the rest of the year in Adam's case, and probably not for Oladipo, it, I kind of tried to analogize it to trading the, uh, like the Walmart Pokemon card packs that are all the same, like Mudkips and Pikachus, or, um, we were talking about how there's a story of a family that found like 10 old hockey card boxes and they all have, or at least some of them have rookie Wayne Gretzky's in there and it's worth millions. This is when you find the 1987 or six tops baseball cards in your attic and you're like, maybe I have a diamond and the whole thing's worth like 20 bucks. I, it's kind of mid for mid doesn't really functionally affect anything. But next year, I kind of hate this. Because why are you trading away someone who, as good as Jaron Jackson Jr. is, as many things as he brings to an offense with his shooting and, I think, sneaky dribble drive game, he cannot rebound. He has never been a good rebounder. And to to trade someone who covers up Jaron Jackson's primary weakness for Victor hasn't played well in five seasons, Oladipo, is kind of pointless. And unless one of those seconds hits, I think you're just trading away a valuable veteran. Adams isn't even that old either. This is not someone who's 35. He's hovered around 30. It feels like for a decade, but... He just also looked 30 when he came in the he league. He looked 30 when he came in the league. Good luck, Santi Aldama, I suppose. I think you're just taking away the bruiser who is perfect next to a guy like Jaron Jackson, and it doesn't make sense to me. Do and you I, think that they're hoping to get some sort of like rebounding figure in the draft with one of those seconds? I'm sure they could try, but... Is that worth what, in the end of the day? Okay, what's more valuable, having Steven Adams or taking a shot on a guy who might be built like Steven Adams, but worse. Yeah, I mean, I, like, I, I get take health. Steven Adams. I understand that he's not the most healthy player, but when he is and just doing the small things that you need him to do, he's such a good fifth guy out there. What does Victor Oladipo do for you that Marcus Smart doesn't? like? Ooh, flop. That's a big one. Um, yeah, but if he flops, then he tears his patella. Like, yeah, his I patella mean, that's, tendon. that's fair, but... I don't know. I that's a that's a really good one. I feel like Marcus Smart, I guess. Marcus Smart has been hurt on the Grizzlies for a lot this season, but I Again, if we're just forecasting the next year because it's lost without Ja, it, it doesn't make sense. Why are you adding guard depth you need to build up next to Jaron Jackson more than you do behind Ja? Or build on the wings and Oladipo does not have the athleticism to hang with wings on defense anymore. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. Moving on, first one that I had as far as, like, matchmaking. I wanted to put Bruce Brown, who got traded to the Raptors as a part of the Pascal Siakam deal, on a team that could use his defense. I think that it would be funny to put him back on the Nuggets, but salary-wise, it doesn't really make sense. I think he would be useful there. But the big one that I thought of as perfect for him is the Bucks, And I know that you're there, too. Uh, thinking that they need to obviously bolster their defense for as much as Doc Rivers could do as a defensive-minded schemer and just bringing in a more stable hand when it comes to 
perimeter defense. Perimeter defense, matchups, not encouraging things that put you out of position, especially for guards that aren't true holiday. Yeah, like that's the biggest thing I've seen with Dame is like I don't want to say his obviously his defense is weaker, but he's a bad defender. He yeah, it's he's, okay. He's, he's, a bad he's not defender. good at def- defense, but overall, it's more so the situations that he finds himself in that I don't really like. Like he takes these switches that he know he shouldn't take, and then they score off of it because he he has the bigger man on him. But I don't know. Like you were saying, I do like Bruce Brown to the Bucks, but my thing is you only really have Bobby and Connington to really as your like assets to trade right now. And I don't know if you're the Bucks if you're really wanting to trade them. Just because what they have done, I personally think we can get rid of Connington and that would be fine. But I don't think you're going to get a caliber player like Bruce Brown without giving up some picks or some younger guys. But we don't really have that. So they still have um, they still have some amount of draft capital. Not a ton. Not a ton. But they, I don't think enough to get a player that is w- the caliber they need. I think well. Doing the math on it, Bobby Portis and Pat Connaughton can get you to Bruce Brown's salary. Yes. And so it just is what are you willing to accept as your reserves? I mean, Bobby has done a lot on offense over the last few years. I met a lot during that title run and is still valuable. Connaughton is dead weight. Yeah, no, I, I've been saying that since we got rid of Dante DiVincenzo where... I liked him a lot more. I think he was a lot better at defense and just being one of those guys that can pester the guard with the ball. Where I think just being younger helps with that, but I also think that DiVincenzo is a superior athlete to Connaughton at this point. Yeah, I just, I don't know. I don't think he's that great, and I think they're kind of overpaying him a little bit in my opinion. But if we could get rid of him and pick up someone, I would be very, very happy. I just don't want to have Bobby leave because he is a really, really good fourth option if, say, Brooke or Giannis aren't having the best game. I think that if you can make it work with salaries, then it would be to your benefit to pick up someone like Otto Porter in that deal, who is on the Raptors, or even Thaddeus Young. Like, you're getting Bruce Brown to shore up some of that perimeter defense and finally have a third guard that can rotate in with Dame and Malik Beasley, who sincerely might, like, if you told me that he was playing on a prosthetic foot, I would believe you with how slow he moves sometimes. One name that I heard repeatedly was Matisse Thibel. Thibel works too, and I think those salaries can get you there as well. It's just, I think that Brown is slightly more valuable on offense. No... Not to discredit Matisse Thibel's defense or offense, but I don't think that anyone will um, confuse him with yeah. a. Uh, I mean, last a score last three games he's put up a total of sixteen points. So he's averaging less than six points. I will say he is averaging thirty six percent from three on almost four a game after he was putting up four at thirty eight last year. I think he's found some of that shot. He definitely and is. it makes him more valuable, but. His free, uh, his field goal percentage has gone down, though. Overall field goal percentage, I think that's also a product of playing with point guards who aren't good at being point guards yet. Fair. Uh, 
I also just think that Bruce Brown can shoulder more of an offensive load. He put up, what was it? He put 19 points against Chicago in a win a couple nights ago, uh, put up 11 against Atlanta and a loss. I mean, he's shown an ability to average double digits more than Matisse Thibel has. And he's actually improved on his three-point shooting this year too. So I think that he can fill a bigger role than Thibel on offense and then act as that defensive connector where Thibel would be dominant, Brown is still very good. So I think that we're kind of in accord there that they need to do something and that someone like Brown or Thibel is going to fit in that spot perfectly. Moving on, one of the bigger guys that I personally don't enjoy the prospect of being traded but think that could help a lot of teams is DeMar DeRozan. The one that I have preordained preordained from up to this point is the 76ers I just don't know the value coming back I think it's mostly in draft capital and I mostly think that if you're the Bulls and you're willing to accept a deal that revolves around Marcus Morris and Robert Covington plus picks and maybe like a Paul Reed bring him back to Chicago which would I think make many of our friends happy ultimately it's not a lot you're just kind of banking on those picks but as we know it is, it is possible that Joel Embiid is going to miss a significant amount of time. And if that is the case, it becomes a big question, because how long? If Embiid really did mess up his knee bad enough to miss the rest of the season, then that's a separate question, and I don't necessarily think you consider making this deal. But if Embiid is able to come back for the playoffs, I think this becomes more and more likely where the Sixers are willing to give up any amount of their remaining draft assets to go get someone like DeRozan because he fits in. He can be an offensive hub in the absence of Embiid and because of how Embiid has continued to improve from deep and the addition of Maxi as a first-time All-Star, congratulations to him, alongside the improved shooting of someone like Batum. Even keeping Tobias Harris in that deal would be huge. Him and DeRozan next to each other would be a great fit. You're looking at a guy who can steady the ship in the absence of Embiid and then be a real finisher when it comes to playoff time. In reality, I think that it's even more likely that he goes to somewhere like the Lakers. I think that it's possible that he even ends up on somewhere like Minnesota. Or the one that I don't know why it kept creeping into the back of my mind, but I keep thinking of the Jazz for as how hot they've been in the new year. I really want them to add and then it just be someone that can bolster their uh, their veteran presence over the next few years. DeRozan is on the back nine. He's going to decline precipitously eventually. But bring him in the rest of the season and ensure that you make the play in. Getting this group into the playoffs would be huge for their development and encouraging for, for Will Hardy's tenure there. You have Sexton playing recently out of his mind. Clarkson's been slow, but that's someone that could get you a DeRozan if you're willing to add. Hell, send us back Chris Dunn. I don't care. But the Jazz, particularly because of that Timberwolves trade, have a ton of assets, and I would love to see them get someone like DeRozan to improve their playoff chances at minimal detriment to their future. Because if you send if you send the Bulls two of those Minnesota picks, they'll take it. And like, if Minnesota's going to be good, what value is it to you? I just think it's interesting when teams who are on the bubble add without sacrificing too much of their future. And I think it would just be cool to see. 
What do you think? I agree. I think the Lakers are definitely going to be rearranging some people pretty soon. Um, DeMar is one of those players I think would really fit well. I just don't know about the age issue there then because that doesn't really fix the issue they have now where a lot of their guys are kind of getting older. But Apparently you could have traded him for LeBron, but it it came out while we were recording here that Rich Paul denied that he might want to get traded. Hilarious that that's, um, that's on the table. <laughs> yeah. Without that being a part of the deal, I think that most teams are going to demand Austin Reeves because who really cares about Russell and Rui Achimura? No offense. But I would love him to the Sixers, and I think that the Lakers are a really substantial reality. I think the other guy just on the same team that we've talked about ad nauseum is Levine. I think Levine also fits on the Sixers, too. The two that jump out to me as possibilities just for asset management reasons is the Nets, because I think they could cobble together salary. I don't think that they would send out... They wouldn't send out bridges for someone like Levine, but... Do you think they would send Cam Johnson? I think that the salary that you would need to get to for Levine would almost require Cam Johnson and then, like, Spencer Dinwiddie or... You need to be willing to send out. I don't personally want Cam Thomas, but that's an option. The other guy, frankly, if you're the Bulls and you're looking for a reclamation project, this is what jumped out to me. Ben Simmons. I don't, again, I we are talking about players I do not want on the basketball team that I root for. But if you're going nowhere and they were going to send off Vooch and DeRozan and Caruso to viable suitors and you just want to have someone back to just try stuff out with. Ben Simmons came back. His first game, he looked like Sixers Ben Simmons. Not the same kind of guy in terms of aggressiveness going downhill scoring. But if you want to bring someone in who has a chance to be a win, so to speak, then that's your best bet. Against Utah the other night, he had damn near triple-double. So I'm not saying that he's going to be back to that guy for the rest of his career in all likelihood. It's probably an aberration. But if you are trading Levine to the Lakers, who's the best player you might get? Reeves? I don't even think that they're going to be willing to give you that. And at that point, you're just banking on a pick in 2029. Cool. I'll look forward for that for the next five years. The Sixers, the same thing we were talking about with DeRozan, where I think DeRozan's lower salary makes it a little bit more tenable, but for Levine, you're probably going to have to get Tobias Harris back. Who cares? Why do we want Tobias Harris if we're rebuilding? You need someone to get points, but I'd rather that go to a young player if we're going to be in that situation anyway. The Pistons, I think, is interesting, but that's only viable if you're getting back a young player that they have no reason to give up. I'm also only saying that because it's been rumored. And it's been rumored that they wanted one of Jaden Ivey, Sar Thompson, or Jalen Duran. And if they're willing to give up one of those players for Zach Levine, I will drive him to the airport. Hell, I will drive him straight to Detroit from here. But unrealistic again. I think the Nets are kind of a perfect fit in that way. And I think Simmons' salary gets you very much within striking range of Levine's. And then after that, it's just a matter of throwing in, like, do you want Cam Thomas too? Yay. 
do you want um Dayron Sharp? Sure. I think that he adds value to the Nets, and I think that it gets off of someone that the Nets don't really care whether or not they have going forward. And I don't think the draft capital required on either end would be substantial. One more player on the Nets, Nick Claxton. Has been rumored a lot just because he was almost an all-star last year purely on the merit of his defense. He is still quite young and fits on a lot of teams because who doesn't need a strong defensive center? This year, he started all 37 games that he's been able to play. He's been relatively healthy. His defense is still pretty awesome. I'm not saying anything that we don't know. I'm only giving you the rundown because I think there are two big teams that could use him and still have enough assets to justify it if you're the Nets. Because if you're not going anywhere and you don't have your own picks, it becomes really hard to talk about trades. Because you are in no man's land. Some of them are swaps, but if the Rockets are worse than you, or better than you rather, they're just going to take your pick anyway. So there's no point in tanking, and there's no point in sending off, I would argue, your first best player. And if you're really that into Mikael Bridges, who... I don't think is destined to be a volume scoring star in the league than your second. But if they were willing to do that, I think the two teams that make the most sense are the Pacers because you might be able to get someone like Miles Turner and Buddy Heald back who would bolster whatever you're trying to build around the team you have now. I think it's a long shot and I don't necessarily think that you're getting that big of an upgrade over Turner, I think, honestly, you're getting worse on offense and better on defense, which I, I don't think the Pacers need help on offense. So that's a viable option. And then the Thunder, where you slot them in next to Chet. It's two skinny guys, but one of them is a defensive monster, and the other one is also, in a way, a budding defensive monster, but has more business being on the perimeter than Claxton. So I think it's very easy to play Chet Holmgren at the four. He's also a good shooter, so he can space out next to him without it being too clunky. Someone who can put the ball on the floor. He's a perfect fit there. It's just whether or not the Thunder are have enough that is appealing to the Nets to make it worth their while. And if they want someone like Alexa Pokachevsky or hell, like you can pick off the scraps of their bench, whether you want Isaiah Joe or Trey Mann. Sally Micic is untouchable. Protect that man at all costs. But what do you think? I don't know too much about the Thunder's kind of situation where, like, who they have to trade. Mm. But I do like Nick Claxton to the Thunder. I think that would be a really cool, tall, like, two big guys duo that we haven't really seen in a while. Um, I think it would be the younger, skinnier matchup or... uh, Spurs answer to well the Spurs is actually it's a good example frankly with if you're putting Holmgren in the Tim Duncan spot uh I was thinking more just the Timberwolves right now that's a good point too I think yeah I think those two teams kind of are your inspiration to make this trade and it all depends on how they really just play together and how they can do on like rebounding and ball handling like it's just going to be the small stuff where 
you do have these two lengthy guys, so you're going to need someone who can be getting the ball to them quickly, which I feel like you do have with some of those passers. But Shea and uh, Giddy. My favorite player ever, Josh Giddy. Um Yes, I think that Shea especially, you have a a dominant offensive player who draws enough attention alone to make up for any deficiencies. Certainly Claxton has, but makes it easier for Chet as a rookie too. He has his warts and he's going to fill out, but if to your point, that I think is a good one. If you view him as your Duncan, building around him in that way is perfect. And I'm sure that was... I wasn't there to watch it, but I know how much it helped Duncan at the time to have David Robinson to protect him on the back end. I think that is a great fit. Quickly before we go to break, the two Bogdanoviches, because it has been rumored that we've heard rumors about everyone on the Hawks at this point besides maybe Jalen Johnson. Bogdan Bogdanovich, who right now this season is averaging 17, three and a half, two and a half. He's shooting 43, 37, 90 from the field. Valuable two slash undersized three on most nights. Can play point guard, albeit not for 30 minutes. He can definitely fill in as a secondary or tertiary ball handler. He's another guy that fits good on the Sixers. I love him on the Timberwolves because the the night that Cat scored 62 and they lost with Mike Conley on the bench lingers in my mind every day. So I think having someone of that quality as a ball handler and a scorer next to not only Edwards, but to help settle things down when uh, when some of those guys get too single-minded on offense or lackadaisical on defense. Bogdanovich is not by any means a great defender, but is not, is not absent-minded, at least. He has never been the problem with the Hawks' defense. I think that is fair to say. So I think him filling in next to, whether it's next to Mike Conley starting over him or being their sixth man is as good of a situation as you can find for him around the league. Plus, I think that even if he's not like the most physically imposing defender, he would fit well into their system as a guy willing to buy into whatever they're doing. I think that goes back to him on the Kings too. He's always been willing to do that. Last one. Because I think the Knicks are still, despite being so dominant that they trade for OG Ananobi and being a top half of the East team, probably for the rest of the season, I think that they could add one more in a way that makes them a sincere threat to make it to the uh, to the Eastern Conference Finals. And the one that works out financially for the most part, because the Knicks, as good as they've been, they still have Evan Fournier as just dead cat hanging off the bow like his salary is your golden ticket plus draft capital and a young player to getting someone impactful and I think Bogdan Bogdanovich to your point about Terry Rozier who we haven't talked about the heat at all yet Terry Rozier no one has won Terry Rozier away from the finals no one's won Bogdan Bogdanovich away but he rounds out a Knicks team that at least offensively, can stagnate without both of their stars. Julius Randle plays, at times, the least aesthetically pleasing basketball on planet Earth, but they're going to miss him. So in the same way that bringing in DeRozan for the Sixers might make a difference in the short term while your guy is out, 
or in the long term, if you have him for the season following too, I think that Bogdanovich can do that for the Knicks. And I think it'd be really easy to put in Quentin Grimes in that deal, who has been sometimes in the doghouse this season for whatever reason. Put him, Evan Fournier, draft capital in there. You get back Bogdanovich if you need more salaries to work than both of these teams have lower contract players that would be able to make it work with it. That's the Jericho Sims of the world, so on and so forth. I like that deal a lot. The other Bogdanovich, Bojan, literally put him on any team that's close to 500 or above, and he'd be valuable. Uh, the one that I wrote down was the Heat. Raven, you made the good point that I just don't know that anyone's going to be willing to take back what they're offering in deals like that if they're not giving up, like Hakez. Yeah, I mean, it's Hakez or, I mean, if you're really wanting to go after their, was it Nikola Jovic? Um, Super. G League MVP. Yeah, I mean, I don't see them really making a move. They don't, unless you're getting rid of Duncan Robinson, which I don't think any team really wants. <laughs> like, I think he has revitalized himself with the playoffs last year and this year, but like, he still makes a huge figure for someone to be the centerpiece of a deal. I think he's making over twenty million. Where close I just, to it, yeah. Where I just don't think any team's gonna want to take that contract. So, like we were saying earlier, they got Rogier already, so that picks up a lot of their kind of on-ball troubles. But mm. unless you're getting another catch-and-shoot guy, which I can't see them really doing, because you have so many. I don't think they make that trade. I think he'll probably go to, I don't even know what, what team really needs a three point shooter right now. Well, all of them. Yeah. But, uh, I think the Kings are a great fit. It's just, Bojan Bogdanovich makes enough money for it to be difficult to match. And then I think the heat specifically are perfect for him. It's just, unless they are willing to take scraps it's not really going to be worth much, and there's no point in trying to work in like a Tyler Hero for anyone on the Pistons. Like I think Hero gets too much flack for him not being a part of the playoff run where they went to the finals, but he's still a wildly valuable offensive player, and he's worth more than Bojan Bogdanovich. So you're talking about teams like the Pelicans, who can stagnate a lot on offense sometimes if Ingram isn't hitting shots and they don't have a proper point guard in which they don't have a lot Bogdanovich is not exactly a point forward himself but can put the ball on the deck sometimes and will continue to improve spacing for Zion I think everyone fits on on the thunder but it's the type of guy that you can do two young guys in a pick and I'm sure the Pistons would be happy with that and then the most interesting one for me is either the the Knicks again because it's just the same type of deal where we're talking about where Fournier picks, where the Heat, because of their trade for the Rosier, they basically have nothing left to give as far as draft capital goes because of the Stepien rule. Can't trade your first-round picks two years in a row. I think sending Bogdanovich to the Knicks could get you a lot of the same haul if you're the Pistons, and it would be somewhat valuable to you. And then the Clippers, just because they have an expensive team and salaries to trade, Again, you can never have too many valuable shooting forwards, and I feel like with how well that team has integrated itself with each other, I think that 
James Harden would fall in love with Bojan Bogdanovic. We're going to come right back, do a little bit more with a couple f- more players, do a little grab bag of everyone else we might see moved, and then talk a little All-Star. All right, and we are back, everyone. Okay. Next. Possibly the player alongside uh, Boyan Bogdanovich that I find to be the most matchable to teams across the league is Malcolm Brogdon. Brogdon, just as a spacing guard, a guy who has been in the league for what feels like 20 years, surprisingly, uh, still, I think, under... There's no way. No, he's he's 32? Yeah, no, he's over 30. Yeah. Well, he came into the league uh obviously older because that was the he's 31. Uh because of that whole controversy with him winning rookie of the year over Embiid. I digress. This year Brogdon's averaging 16-3 and 5 on a poopy poopy Portland Trail Blazers team. He's despite the the mess that they often have on offense with rookies or guys who Moonlight as point guard sometimes, bringing up the ball. He's still shooting 41% from three, higher than his career average. He, despite that ugly-ass shot, can get it off from even a step behind the line. He does not turn the ball over often. He is wildly valuable despite being on one of the worst teams in the league. And for that reason, I think that he fits on some of the best teams in the league. No kidding. So, to that effect... I think he works on the Cavs, especially with Darius Garland coming back. He's not going to start, but him as your super duper six man serves purposes. I think having him and I don't think you're going to be able to play Dylan Windler in the playoffs, but having two of the best volume three point shooters in the league doesn't hurt. Uh, Again, Sixers, Lakers, they fit for everything. But if the Lakers are going to strike out on guys like Levine and like uh, even the DeRozans or the Carusos of the world, I think getting Brogdon at his $22 million works out really well with D'Angelo Russell's or Ruyat Murray's contract. It gets you there, and you can throw in a pick if you have to, protected. You can get a guy that makes a tangible difference for the rest of the season. Again, Heat, same problem. If you're the Blazers, who do you really want? I also don't think that there's a... A lot of good juju between those two, and they wouldn't be willing to make any deals with them. Uh, but I don't want to call businessmen petty, but they're like the rest of us. They don't forget. Have you ever have you seen any of the? There was a post when um. There's been a lot of stuff on like Heat Reddit and Twitter where, like, when they win without Bam or Jimmy, they they say that you just got beat by the Dame package. <laughs> And it's uh it's Hero and Jovic and um Robinson like because they scored twenty, and look, <laughs> old old rich white men are just as petty as young rich or young poor white men as I think we can all attest. Um, I think that he fits perfectly on the Nuggets, but again, it's an issue of salary. The one that I settled on is the Magic, because the Magic are still. Congratulations to Boncaro. We mentioned him uh, briefly as an all-star, potentially, but didn't think he would make it. He did. Awesome to see for one of the young rising teams in the league. But 
The Magic as a team are one of the worst three-point shooting by volume and by percentage. You're bringing in one of the best players by both primarily percentage, but Brogdon does take over five a game. So bringing him in to eat up some of the Fultz minutes who has made himself less of a bust as a number one overall pick, but I don't really see as a starting point guard for the most part. Jalen Suggs has made himself into a credible shooter while playing amazing defense, and I think he's someone that fits perfectly next to Brogdon, who is no slouch himself. Brogdon contributes to what they do well and improves slightly what they do not. He's not the kind of guy who's going to fix your offense by himself. He's not going to raise that shooting alone, but just that modicum of space, especially in late and closing lineups where in games that I've watched, Paolo Bancaro will take spinning like 21 footers to win the game and sometimes he hits them and every time it's a bad shot. Uh, not to sound like Paul George when Damian Lillard hit it in his face, but there's just certain shots for some guys that they have no business taking, no matter how confident they are. I love that Paolo has the chutzpah to try and pull some of this stuff off, but having a guy that not only can calm down the offense in those situations, but just give Paolo and Franz more space to work is vital. I think he's perfect there. Do you like any of those other spots better? Not really. I think the magic makes the most sense. They're, um, they're really fun and too, and I want them to have more good players. I could see them could see him going to the heat, but like we said earlier, I just don't see them getting anything worth of value back. So that's the only reason I don't think that. I think Sixers and Cavs would also both be good options, but Cavs, I don't think, want to send anyone. So I think Magic or, I mean, if the Lakers really, really need someone, I feel like they could go with him, but I feel like he's not their first pick. I don't either. Uh, looking just at some of the Magic's percentages, Wendell Carter, who we will talk about here in a second, is their highest shooting player, and he does not do it on high volume, and he's only played 22 games. Joe Ingles is ancient and has played 17 minutes a game this season. Suggs is almost at 40. Paolo himself, I will give credit to, is not like below average at three. He's sitting at 36. But like the rest of the guys that are even at average or above are guys like Chumo Kiki, who's taken 52 threes this entire season. Anthony Black, who's taken 61. And then Franz has not found that shot. He is 32% on the year. So bring in Brogdon. Good idea. Other one, credit to my brother for this idea that I liked a lot. Wendell Carter. We're going to go back to the pot and talk about the Sixers for this specifically. But I think that as either an undersized five or an oversized four, I think Carter works perfectly on a lot of teams. And I think that with how well he's been shooting in this year, up at 42%, he's always been a good defender, sneaky passer, solid starter. I like him on the Sixers, of course, especially if Embiid is out, he can get integrated in that team. And then I legitimately think play the four next to him. But if the Bucks were able to go all in on anyone, I think that is the guy where you can put him either on the bench or put I just I liked the thought of it because I think that if you just play a supersized lineup with Giannis at the three it just like rustled 
part of my jimmies that I didn't know were there. So I was wondering what you thought. That would be a to get Brooke Lopez, Giannis, and Wendell Carter Jr. in the paint. You fix your front line for sure. There, I mean, you're almost unblike. You can't really score there now. You would have to be taking mid range or passing it out which for a better shot. People but, have been doing. Don't get me wrong. It's which a, makes me very happy because I've been a, a huge advocate for Sean Livingston being one of the best shooters in the league with his mid range shot, and I think Demar Derozan is the next best person in the league right now. Yeah, imagine getting them both on the Sixers. So, and Wendell's always been emerging from there. Uh, Mavericks too, because. I mean, nothing about their their defense is particularly inspiring, but if you were to pick an area, I think uh, interior defense is the one that affects more of the floor. And therefore, if you were only able to get one player to try and alleviate Dallas's 25th defensively rated defense, bringing in Wendell to, to sit back there next to Derek Lively, who is just too young to be relied on, to be the defensive fulcrum of a team, I think that that would be huge. And I think his passing and just overall offensive skill would take a slight burden off Luka, although, frankly, I don't know if Luka wants it off of him. Uh, Running down a few quick ones before we do a little grab bag, uh, P.J. Washington should play for the Thunder, and I think the Hornets should be just generally folded. Washington shooting under his average uh, for his career from three this year, but... Still, we'll have... I feel like P.J. Washington specifically always has one or two nights a season where it's like, P.J. Washington just scored 42 points. And having that to continue to augment your offense next to guys on the Thunder who are extremely talented, but ultimately, as we know, young, talented players are also streaky. So to bring in a guy who is still, despite um, several years in the league, is only 25 he is, I think, at times an underrated defender. He's not wildly positive. He's not wildly negative, but he's going to fit in there well. He plays like a big, but is built like a wing. And, I mean, just looking, literally, look at He has 43 points, like, a week ago. He had 43 points, yeah, a week ago against the Jazz. But then, so he shot 17 from 22 for that game. His last two games combined, he shot... 17 for 36. Yeah, we're not talking. That's not bad, actually. That's not bad. No, I'm not saying it's it's not bad. It's not great, obviously. He made the same amount of shots over two games compared to one. But when you're a young guy, like you said, who's streaky and on a team that has absolutely nothing to win and is a glorified AAU team, those numbers are good. They're solid. And I think that putting him in the infrastructure... With uh, I use that word a lot. Putting him in an environment with guys like Chet, I don't think that he necessarily solves their uh, their rebounding or they do do not have defensive issues in in my humble opinion. But I've always uh thought of him as someone who fights on the offense, even if he's undersized on the defensive boards. But you have a big guy next to you, and ideally. In that deal, I would love it if they also picked up Nick Richards just as, like, for those who are uninformed, and it's someone, it's not, I don't mean that as a diss, because uh, I do not blame for anyone for not having uh, a 
widely developed knowledge of the backup center on the Charlotte Hornets. But Nick Richards is seven feet tall. He's 26. He averages 10 and eight on a terrible team. And I think would be valuable size next to or behind Chet. Picking up them both would be one of those just chef's kiss, perfect deals, A plus grades from every outlet. Uh, Raven and I are in lockstep on Dorian Finney-Smith getting sent back to the Mavs. Ideally, if you can banish Grant Williams too, you're uh, you're doing yourself a favor with addition by subtraction. But I don't know. Defensively, he's everything they need. The Mavs' problem for the last five years, ever since they drafted Luka, is just getting defense around him. It'd be nice if Dorian Finney-Smith remembered how to shoot at the rim, considering he's only at 50% at the rim this season. But I have zero qualms about this. Yeah. I mean, I think another big name that I don't know if we've talked about yet is DeJounte Murray. I was going to get to him. Uh, Real quick, uh, before we get to DeJounte Murray, another point guard in that ilk who is obviously of not the same caliber, but if you... Kind of like how if you go on Amazon and, like, the the Adidas that you want are sold out, you can go and get, like, the off-brand running shoes. Underrated, truly. Uh, Tyus Jones, 12-3-6. He's shooting 40% from three. I think he's perfect on the Timberwolves. I think he's perfect on not every team to Jonte Murray is because Tyus Jones doesn't play defense, but put him on the Bucks, put him on the Lakers, put him on... Rockets, even, I thought would be good just to have more guard depth uh, with what they're building there. And it's someone who's not too old and could continue to be a helping hands in years to come. DeJounte Murray. I don't think he's going to get traded. Because I think that there is a there's multiple disparities going on here. DeJounte Murray has not been really a quality defender in the last year and a half, two years. Not to the level he was in San Antonio, where he was legitimately a menace, uh, both on and off ball. He is slender man. He is built long and has all the tools to do it. But ever since that he's gotten to Atlanta, I do not think that I am speaking out of turn to say that I and most people have seen a significant drop off in his defensive value. If we want to go purely by stats, this is the first year since 2019 that his team has actually been better on defense with him off the floor and then last year he was only a marginal positive meanwhile i think it's more of a hawks issue that he's not super positive on offense too but it's also because i don't really see him as a pure point guard i think he's a two and i think he needs to be put in a position where he can play primarily off ball be put in very advantageous isolation positions when he's forced to do it and then locked in on defense like he used to but I think that some people still think of him as that San Antonio guy. And I think that the guys trading for him want to acquire him at the value he is now, very validly. I just think the Hawks are more married to what they gave up for him than what they're going to get for him. And I heard, yeah, I heard um, one of the theories with Murray is that the Spurs pick him back up again. I saw, I like that, which is a very impressive business move. If you I trade him, then I don't want to say tank, but you tank and did. get a generational pick. And then you can trade him back for less than what you sent him away for. If he, if he comes back and is the same player, that's such a good 
pickup for them. But if he comes back and is playing like he has been in Atlanta, yeah, then I don't think it's worth it for them to even try. I think this is the kind of thing, too, that's brought up in terms of possibilities for when players get traded. It's like, oh, just send them back. No, going back to our point we just made about the Blazers being too, I don't know, salty to make deals with the Heat. Like, why do you... It's so embarrassing to call R.C. Buford back up and say, hey, will you take him back for less? And they're like, sure. I think that that kind of deal is the most appropriate one for DeJounte Murray and whatever value Atlanta can get out of him. I just don't think that they can reasonably accept a lot of the deals that are going to be put on the table for the teams that are rumored to want them, i.e. I don't think the Bucs can give up enough. I don't think the Lakers can give up enough. I think teams like the Pelicans could or the Kings or even like maybe the Knicks or the Cavs can come close. I don't think the Cavs will want them. But let's talk like Magic, something like that. I think it's possible. I just don't know that anyone's going to be willing to give up what the Hawks want. And if a rebuilding team wants it, I would be shocked if they were willing to send them back to the Spurs, who make the most sense. That's where I land on DeJounte Murray. So am I probably going to be proven wrong and some team is either going to over or underpay for him? Probably. But I, I sincerely am going to like stake the claim that I don't think he's going to get traded. Quickly, before we run down some all-star reserves and then get out of here, a grab bag of players that I like in different spots. I don't think the Clippers need to add anyone necessarily, but Kelly Olenek just has a big guy who can space. Uh, no offense to Zubats or... Uh, or Mason Plumley, I think Zubats's defensive rebounding and just size in general will benefit them. But I think you can have one more dude that can at least fill up a space, and then make threes more than either of those guys is fairly invaluable. If you're the Clippers, also try to get one of those guys like Richards or even um, picking up like a Jalen Smith because I I just think that there is going to be series where their lack of skilled size might really become an issue against Jokic or Towns or even like having someone to body up Kevin Durant. I like Gary Trent going to the Celtics, where if they're looking to add someone as a fourth guard slash someone who can fill in as a small ball wing, he's a good shooter and someone that could fill in well. Jeremy Grant, someone that we've talked about a lot, I think the Knicks with that Fournier salary can get to Jeremy Grant's contract fairly reasonably. And if you're looking for someone who's a, if nothing else, elite role player, but also borderline star just in how he has developed over the course of the last four or five years ever since going to Detroit, I think he fits very well there. D'Angelo Russell and Rui Achimura for Kyrie has been a possibility since the beginning of the season. Their salaries being able to get you Kyrie has been obvious since the day it happened. Kyrie's been injured all year. I, it's still on the table if the Lakers are willing to put on limited protections on their future pick. But, I mean, good luck for both parties in that instance. I don't really see how D'Angelo Russell or Rui Achimura makes your defensive problems any better. Kyle Kuzma, I also said to the Mavs, uh, Kuzma's defense has fallen off a cliff. It's gotten over seven defensive rating points worse from last season. But in the same way that we're talking about DeJounte, I think it's fair to talk about Kuzma, put him back in a winning situation, and you never know. 
I also think at times Kuzma has been a little banged up. And then last, a really dumb trade that I came up with at like 12.30 last night. Because Kaminga, who, again, wild that he's willing to speak out of turn like that in the media. But the one I put together, it's between the Warriors and the Nets. Draymond Green, Gary Payton, and Jonathan Kaminga for Miles Bridges, Dorian Finney-Smith, and Cam Thomas. All I'm saying, this is dumb. And the Warriors could put in draft capital in here too to, I guess, offload Draymond. Well, all I'm saying is that if you're the Nets, you get a player younger than Bridges and who can has at least the athletic potential to do even more things than him in Kaminga. You get a solid role player in Gary Payton, and then you get an ostensible leader in Draymond who will improve your defense and come as a leader of men. <laughs> and then on the other side, if you're Golden State, you get two solid to great defensive wings in Bridges and Dorian Finney-Smith. You take some of the offensive load that has diminished Bridges' defense off of his plate, and he's but he's still clearly very valuable in that sense. Finney-Smith as a shooter and defender next to Steph is still valuable. And I think helps minimize Clay's issues as an on-ball guy, considering Bridges has developed in that way. And then you get Cam Thomas as a scorer, a guy who I am not in love with, but I think would benefit a lot from going to Warriors University. On a scale of 1 to 10, how dumb do you think of it? Like a 6. Pretty dumb. It, it is, but I don't think it's the dumbest trade you could have come up with. It's really fun. It is a fun trade. I think it would just be kind of I don't want to say earth shattering but it would definitely change how Draymond getting traded or anyone from the Warriors big three going back to 2015-16 is is pretty big news it's enormous news but if Draymond seems to be the one guy that they have been willing to consider moving on from and I feel like this is the best case scenario for the kind of value you'd be able to extract from him and Kuminga I had one guy that I wanted to bring up with the team. Go for it. I said uh, Pelicans and Jared Allen could work out, but now that we were talking about the Steven Adams trade, hmm. I think even him and Memphis would work. I, think I, don't, that, I don't know if I they think would that's actually a great, trade, but I think it would work. I think that's a great point because I think, again, I've been in favor of Memphis adding in preparation for next year. Not guys who are going to fall off the cliff by next season, so not that level of aging veteran. Jared Allen is young, has, in, I think in many people's eyes, played even better than when he was an all-star, and fills that exact role next to, next to Jaron Jackson that you would like. He's also a decent passer, would be monstrous in a pick-and-roll of Cha. I like that a lot. I think that they also have a couple of young guys back there, whether it's you know, not everyone's going to get excited by Zaire Williams or uh, David Roddy, but picks in there too. They just acquired even more seconds in that Oladipo trade. Maybe that's what it was for. If the Cavs are willing to move on, which with how good they've been, I don't think they are. I think that's an excellent idea. Finally, all-star reserves. Before I talk at all about this, Raven, do you have any qualms with how the uh how the reserves worked out i mean 
I do think there were a few guys that, like you have on your list right here, I think all those guys definitely should have made it. I don't think the guys that did make it aren't deserving of those spots, but I would just like to kind of see the process of like the train of thought for how they got there. I do too. And I think that is uh, one benefit to how just sports media in general has developed is that you know, a lot of the times, whether it's just through Twitter or through podcasts or from articles that go up very quickly on the internet, we learn a lot of people's thought processes and I am appreciative of that. Uh, full cards on the table, I hate snub talk. I hate being like, oh, all-star rosters need to expand it. No, they don't. Oh, it's like, oh, so-and-so didn't get... Sorry, it's a really good league. That's not something that I think that we need to make concessions for because as soon as you... This is like a college football playoff conversation. As soon as you expand it to 15, then you start getting like, I don't know who a good you get like is um Kevin Herter an all-star talk because he's scoring 20 points one year like we don't need that yeah I mean I I think it's kind of the opposite of the problem that they were having in like the early 2000s where you know every team got one guy to go that's what it it felt like the baseball all-star game because it was just like I guess we'll just try and get one of everyone and I don't I mean it feels kind of like there's too much talent in these pools now, which I don't want to say there's too much talent because this is the top 1% of the league. Like Expansion. Yeah, I don't, I don't think you need to. I think when you expand, even if you get two more guys on the reserves, that's another rotation of people that you're going to have to put in and like get those guys on there and have minutes. Oh so God, do you know? Okay. I, because not to interrupt you, you said the 2000 all-star game mm-hmm. and I just wanted to look because I was interested. Oh dear. Yeah. Okay. Dude. So the West starters is, is fairly normal. It's KG, Jason Kidd, Tim Duncan, Kobe and Shaq. Mm-hmm. Okay. The West reserves, Rashid Wallace, old Gary Payton, Chris Weber. Yeah, I was going to say old, Weber was on that team. I know that. Old John Stockton, Michael Finley, Ooh. older David Robinson, and old Carl Malone. And then Eddie Jones started um, for the East. Who? Uh, fair. Uh, and then Reggie Miller. Allen Houston, Knicks legend. Uh, Glenn Robinson. Jerry Stackhouse, Dale Davis. Okay, yeah, we're fine. The fact that the guys being left off of the list this year, the four that I wrote down, two from each conference, both Kings. I think I am not bothered by Carl Anthony Towns making it over DeMontis Sabonis, and I would have taken Sabonis over Fox. But again, like the margins are so thin that if you wanna if you wanna tell me that you chose Towns because his team is better, I don't fault you for that. And then it, for Fox, who is he going in over? Like, yeah, he's not really playing. Is Fox going? Is Fox had a better season than Anthony Edwards? No. Is he going to get in over Steph Curry? No. If you're going off the wild card, he hasn't been better than Paul George, and Towns is the one guy. And at that point, you're splitting hairs. I believe that Sabonis should have been in. I think Sabonis, in many ways, is having his best season. He's put up a triple double last night, the night before too. I, these votes were cast weeks ago. I am generally okay. I just would have preferred a king. I don't necessarily think that we needed to have both Timberwolves. 
Outside of that, on the other side, I'm happy to see Maxi and Boncaro because I like new blood in here. Um, and then Jalen Brunson, Donovan Mitchell, we're talking the guards here, Tyrese Halbert and Damian Lillard all just really are going to make it. So the two guys that I wrote down as as someone that I might have wanted to see are for vastly different reasons. Trey Young and Derek White. Derek White, like, look, if you're as much as I will argue for it, if you're making a statistical case, these guys are going to win. I think efficiency wise, you can really like put your cards on the table and advocate for Derek White over Ben Caro. I think you can do the same thing for Young, and but for years, people just haven't viewed him as a winning player. And that will forever follow you until you do. And so unless he's putting up even wilder numbers than now, I think Trey Young... Honestly, like I, I feel bad sometimes talking about it because I think that just his statistical dominance does deserve to be recognized. But like he's arguably the worst defender in the NBA, and he shoots 42% from the field and 36 from three. Like... Great, your team sucks, and you put up big stats. I would rather have Paolo on an up-and-coming team or Tyrese Maxey on one of the best teams in the East. So I don't feel bad for either. Biggest thing is that some of these guys are going to get replaced because I know Julius Randle is hurt and is not going to be playing in this game. And then who am I? I'm missing one other person, so I apologize. But Oh, Embiid's hurt now. So they're going to get another forward in there. So if you get two more forwards, maybe you get, I don't know. You're not going to even get the guards you want. Maybe you, I don't even know how this works. I don't think they could say Ben Carroll is the forward and then they take Trey Young. They might just do some weird shit like that anyway, but I think it'll be someone like Jared Allen or they'll, uh, I don't know, they'll put Porzingis in there maybe. and then, Bobby Portis. Or Bobby Portis, very deservedly. All right. Before we get out of here, uh, Raven, tell me why Lewis Hamilton didn't go into Ferrari matters. So we, we will, me and Oliver will obviously talk about this a lot more on Monday, but some very big news coming out of F1. Um, Lewis Hamilton has been with Mercedes since that team was created in 2010. Um, they have won, I believe, four championships together four or five depending on who you ask but what uh there was race came down to the final like lap and lewis hamilton lost by a point so some people say that there was some events happened that makes him deserve of an eighth world championship so there's some drama in that world but overall he is leaving mercedes and going to ferrari which ferrari historically has always gotten successful long uh tenured drivers to kind of come towards the end of their career this is just big because where ferrari is at compared to red bull right now uh this move makes me think that they are believing that they are closing in that gap it also is big for the other ferrari driver charles leclerc he has wanted lewis hamilton to be his teammate since he got into f1 this is just a giant super team forming. And uh, you asked, like, how big of news is this? And I said, think Rogers leaving Green Bay level. Like, he's had so much history with Mercedes and that team. He's kind of 
grown with that team and made a lot of the important decisions with them. And it's it's more shocking that this was announced before the season started. I feel like, I mean, what happened was Lewis had a release option on his contract and he just activated that at the end of the year. So it's going to be changing a lot how not this year in F1 is, but next year in F1. So, I mean, this year it's going to be the exact same. Both Ferrari drivers are still going to be Charles and Carlos Sainz Jr. And Mercedes is still going to have Lewis Hamilton and George Russell as their one and two. But, yeah, we'll talk more about that. I'll get Oliver's opinions and we'll kind of discuss kind of the results of why this happened and what will happen with these moves happening in the future. But the very last thing I wanted to say that I saw is that Nickelodeon announced <laughs> that they will be starting the Super Bowl with sweet victory. And okay. that is going to be the highlight of my Super Bowl night. Okay. <laughs> uh, we'll get into that and more next week as Super Bowl media day. Everything goes on in that world. One last, uh, one last question. Does so? What is the constructors' cup, and why does this move affect that? Constructors' cup is so in F one. There's kind of two uh, competitions happening at the same time. You have the drivers facing off against each other for the world champion, and then you have the constructors' cup, which is more of the teams facing each other, where you tally all the points a team gets at the end of the year and whoever gets the most points wins. Last year it was obviously Red Bull with Max winning over 400 points and then comfortably getting another almost 200 from Checo. It it changes essentially where if Ferrari placed higher in both of uh, in almost all the races, they would get more points and therefore be closer in that gap when you get the problem with Ferrari for a while was they were getting, they had really good pace, but could, could have trouble transporting that into race time. But now that you have not only a quick young driver, but a talented driver who's, I don't want to say reaching the end of his career, but definitely kind of leaving his prime it feels like they're trying to kind of claw back at Red Bull and trying to get more points to spread out evenly, which is just going to make this overall more competitive, not only in race to race, but at the end of the season too, when it comes down to those final three races, there might be a lot more stakes on the line for a certain team like Ferrari compared to a McLaren. All right. Well, any more that you want to hear about that, go check out On the Gravel, which Raven hosts with Oliver. Uh, check out everything else here on the Alethio Network. Yeah, we had uh, Avery Lewis McDougal on today with Tassos for the Daily Hockey Show. He was giving us some boots on the ground stuff for the NHL All-Star Weekend. So that was super exciting. Go check that out. Right on. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I will see all y'all on Tuesday. See everyone next week. <laughs>